You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. How are you guys doing? Good. Uh, well, listen, we have uh, been concluded, well, we have concluded last week, uh, our friend Francis Chan came and did the last piece of um, our Discovering God series, where we talked about the attributes of God and the character of God and who God is. And um, now we are moving into a series called Following God. So as we unpacked the, uh, the character and attributes of God, it should prompt us to start thinking about how do we follow God. So that the whole concept uh, here is, if you think about it when you're looking for a job, uh, a job posting comes up, and the first thing you want to do is find out who the organization is, what do they do, what are they about, how do they treat their employees, and what are their outcomes uh, looking like, things like that. And then the second question is, how do I fit? Do, do what, how do I fit into what this organization is doing? And that is kind of the, the way our series is leading now. We, we talk about discovering God, understanding who he is, and now we look at how do we, as God's people, how do we follow him? And you may have the same question that, that many of us do, and that is, how are the, the Ten Commandments relevant? So if we're going to look at following God through the lens of the Ten Commandments, which God gave to his people, then how, how relevant are those Ten Commandments? I mean, these were ancient people. Uh, here's kind of a, a way of thinking about this. My father-in-law, if you hang out with him for more than five or ten minutes, you'll probably hear about the 1953 uh, high school basketball state championship in Oregon, all right, Uh, of which he professes uh, he made a a very important shot and was probably the hero and in the newspaper and the whole thing. Uh, So when he tells this story, he had a reunion a year or two ago where all uh, the guys went from that team and and they had like a ceremony and things. Two things went through my head. One, how many of those guys are still alive? Uh, and two, how relevant is any of that information to the people sitting in the stands? I mean, this was 1953. The guys were all white. They were under six feet tall. They wore Converse. No one could dunk. How relevant is this to the people in the stands or to any of us today? Really, it's, it's not. So the, that you may think that same way about the Ten Commandments. How relevant? This is an ancient people. How relevant is that for us today. So uh, what we're going to do today, I'm going to give just a little intro to this series and some context, and then Pastor Dave's going to come up and, uh, and give you the rest of the sermon. So when we talk about the Ten Commandments, we, we need to remember the context with which God gave the Israelites the Ten Commandments. Remember that they were uh, brought out of slavery from Egypt. They came across the Red Sea, and they are literally now in no man's land. They have uh, no government They have no identity as a people. Uh, They don't even really understand or know who God is. Remember when Moses, when God spoke to Moses at the burning bush, said, go speak to my people, he said, "Uh, who should I even tell them you are? How do I explain who you are? And that's when he says, tell them I am. I am. That's that's how you should describe me. So the Israelites don't even know who God is. And so what God does is he gives Moses these ten commandments as a way of revealing himself himself. To his people. Now, when we look at the relevancy and what scripture has to say about the law and how it applies to us today, it can be confusing because when you read through scripture, parts of the New Testament seem to set the Ten Commandments aside and say those are done with, and then other places it seems, seems to uphold them. Uh, so scriptures like John 1.17 says the law was given 
through Moses. Grace and truth came through Christ. Romans 6.14 says, uh, you are not under the law, but you're under grace. And in Galatians 5.18, it says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you're no longer under the law. But then in other places in the New Testament, such as Luke 16.17, it seems to affirm the law. It says, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Now, what we need to understand as we begin to look at the Ten Commandments is that there are three types of laws that God gave to the Israelites. Three types of laws. There was ceremonial law, there was civil law, and there was moral law that he gave to the Israelites. Ceremonial law being the religious festivals and, and how they should worship in the, in the sanctuary. Civil law was their government and their form of structure as a nation. And then moral law was summarizing all that the Ten Commandments had to say. It was the standard of relationship with God. Ceremonial law, the first one, when they would, the acts they would perform in the sanctuary, all of those pointed forward to Christ. They were all ushering in who Christ would be when he came to earth. Therefore, those ceremonial laws are set aside. In Colossians 2.17, it says that those were a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So there are only two sacraments that we as a church still hold to. The first is baptism, and the second is the Lord's Supper, communion. Baptism being the the representation, the outward uh, manifestation of what God has done internally with us when we go under the water and are brought back up, remembering what Christ has done. The Lord's Supper, communion, taking the bread and breaking. God said, this is my body broken for you, my blood poured out in the cup. So we do those two sacraments because they both look back at the cross. They remind us what Christ has done on the cross. Similarly with the, the civil law, it is also expired. Remember, he said ceremonial law, the acts done in the sanctuary, those that were accomplished in Christ. The civil law, the governing law, those are also expired, but for a different reason. The church, us, we are no longer a state. Israel was a state. They needed government around them. They needed structure. We're no longer a state. Our kingdom is spiritual in nature, not civil. The church is not, now the church is governed by church discipline, which is based on the moral law that God gives us. We have spiritual consequences rather than civil consequences. So this is what the New Testament teaches us, that ceremony and civil law, uh, those were pointing to Christ, they've been accomplished and fulfilled. What now is in effect are those sacraments and the discipline of the church, because they echo the ceremonial and civil ways of the past. The New Testament rejects the idea that we can be justified by the law. That speaks very specifically. Remember, in Romans 6, 14, it says, we are no longer under the law, but under grace. Our salvation is not dependent on fulfilling the Ten Commandments. In fact, we know we are not capable of filling the Ten Commandments. The New Testament never declares an end, though, to God's moral law. Remember, we said ceremonial, civil, God's moral law. That moral law is the standard for our relationship with God. Ernest Reisinger, he describes God's moral law this way. 
It is the eternal standard of right moral conduct. It is a fixed object, a fixed objective standard of righteousness. It is eternal. It is never changing. It is fixed. See, the moral law is an eternal law. It is God's law. And it reveals who God is. It reflects who he is. And it instructs us as his people to relate to him. In Hebrews 1.3, it says that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So now we can say that the law of Moses, it's not just the law of God. It is the law of Christ fulfilled. So with that, let me read Deuteronomy 5, 1 through 22, and then Pastor Dave's going to come up and speak to us. So turn with me or uh, flip with me to... uh, Deuteronomy 5, 1 through 22. Here's what it says. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today. You shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire. While I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire and you did not go up into the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. For six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your, living, of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field or his male servant or female servant, his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud and the thick darkness. With a loud voice, he added no more, 
and he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. It's our text. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and its power. I pray that right now it would have a, a unique impact on our souls, God, that we wouldn't take this as Daly was saying, as something ancient, irrelevant, but I pray that it would be fresh. I know that this, the Ten Commandments suffer from our own familiarity with, with them. We know them, but we don't really know them. So I pray over the next several weeks that we would truly get to know them intimately, God. That we can say like the psalmist, we love your law. I know that's so hard for many of us. Show us, Lord, the context of the Ten Commandments. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we no longer really as a nation or as a, really as a city or, or a nation, uh, live under external values or norms anymore. Most of the values that we did have were thrown out in the 60s and the 70s right here in San Francisco. Um, I don't know if you guys ever seen the, or read about the Summer of Love or seen the PBS documentary, The Summer of Love. Anyone see that yet? I think we, I want to do a screening of it at, at the church sometime, um, maybe during the summer. Um, but the Summer of Love, 1967, Hate Ashbury, there was civil unrest in our nation during this time. Never before had there been so many Americans under the age of 25, there's something like 90 million of them. And they were disillusioned with the world around them. They were disillusioned with what was going on in Vietnam and what was going on in our own nation here. And a generation took to the hate district in San Francisco to build for themselves a utopian society where they threw out all norms. No money, no jobs, no judgment. There was free food delivered by the diggers, this, this anarchist group, and they served what was called digger soup, and it was great, and everybody loved it, and it was, I don't know, free, so it was great. Um, There was free love, and love is a a broad term. I guess you could say it was free sex. There was a free health clinic, free drugs, free communal living. There was even a free store, and that doesn't even make any sense. There was a free store on hate. But one summer after the summer of love, it didn't even last a whole year, just one season, the hate was trashed. Stores were left vacant. Kids were getting sick with disease that spread everywhere. The free clinic in the hate actually gave classes on basic hygiene. They were teaching hippies how to brush their teeth. They're like, okay, we understand that you have no law. Let's make up one law. Brush your teeth. Wash your hands. Disease is spreading all over the hate. So they were giving free clinics like, this is how you wash your hands. This is how you brush your teeth. Because they moved to San Francisco and threw away everything that would bind them. It was free. We lived free. We did what we want. But after just nine months of this summer, nine months, it went from January to mid-September. Everyone was over it. The hippies that lived in San Francisco told all the hippies to leave, leave San Francisco, move back home, we're done with you. They actually had, on October 6th, 1967, a mock funeral and declared it the death of hippie. (laughs) So if you're still trying to hold that dream alive, it was dead a long time ago. It didn't even last a summer. This idea that we can throw away all laws and get, away, get rid of everything and live. Everyone that lived here hated it then. The people that, that was their quiet, beautiful neighborhood in the 60s. And then even the hippies that moved here hated it after they were here for a while. One writer who moved here for the, the Summer of Love said, I don't think the Summer of Love left any blueprints behind on how to build a better world. It was much more a showcase for enjoyment, for happiness, for freedom. 
See, we have this idea, we have come to believe that freedom is the ability to do whatever we want to do whenever we want to do it. This is what your idea and my idea of freedom is growing up in this nation and this time, especially on, in California. Freedom is I get to do whatever I want. I choose to do whatever I want when I want to do it. Whatever desires, whatever pursuits, whatever even lusts I have, I can act them out. Freedom is not living for the beautiful and the true and the good. Freedom is whatever my heart desires, I get to do it, and I'm entitled to do it. Don't tell me what I can't do. I'm entitled to. I have freedoms in this country. I have freedoms as an American. I have freedoms as someone who lives in California. I have freedoms that my education has afforded me. Don't tell me what I can't do. When that's our definition of freedom, one that takes this idea of freedom is I can do what I want when I want, and we throw out all the other laws as a blueprint for society, one of three things should happen. When we ask the question, then how should we live? As Dave Daly was up here introing this, he's like, okay, so we've talked about the attributes of God. How do we live? If this is who God is, how do we live? When you ask that question, how do we live, and you think in your mind right now, freedom is, I get to do whatever I want. This is what you'll come up with, with how to live. Either one, it'll be anarchy. I can do what I want. I can do what I want whenever I like to do it, no matter who it harms. That's anarchy. Now, I know a lot of us don't live this way. Anarchy hurts other people, and that's why it's not really that popular. If you're an anarchist, you're like, oh, you hurt other people. You realize that when you're an anarchist. Yeah, you're supposed to love each other. Okay, I get that. So what most of us have resorted to is relativity. What we think is what I like is as good as what you like, and vice versa. What you like is as good as what I like. And who's to say what's really right or what's really wrong? We all have our own ways. I have mine, you have yours, and I won't judge you. This is the way we live today, especially in this city. It's most popular on the coasts, New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, that sort of thing. A lot of you in here, especially those of you under 35, I can throw myself in there for like another half a year. A lot of you in here, especially under 35, have a very adverse reaction to authority in any form, any form at all. When someone tells you what to do, it, you rear your back, something comes out, and you're like, you don't tell me what to do. I'm my own person. You question anyone with power. You question motives. You question integrity. And you question their right to tell you what to do. And, and you guys, we wouldn't be wrong in doing that because the people with power are sometimes the most corrupt people. The people that tell us what to do are sometimes the most corrupt. This happens in the church. This happens outside the church. This happens in government. This happens in power. And some of you guys coming to this church are like, the pastor wears denim. How threatening can this church be? Unless you meet Tarek face-to-face, you're not really threatened by the people at this church. Like, it's not that authoritarian. It's like it's, it's chill. Everyone's relaxed, and they give you time to respond to God, and God tells you what to do, not the pastors. And this is kind of, when we come in here, you're like, well, they don't have that many rules when you come into this church. The problem with authoritarianism as it pertains to us, is that we're flawed. But what we say as a church and what we say as pastors is that there is one ultimate authority, even though you have a problem with authority. And that authority is God. See, the Ten Commandments is a death to relativism. It's a death blow to relativism. You can't be 
You can't say all is relative with God saying, I command, I say, I, my voice speaks, and this is true, and this is right. And also because God speaks, as it says in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5, because it's the voice of God, it challenges our problem with authority. It confronts that. And this is what the Ten Commandments will do. And this is, I'm telling you guys, this is good for us. The Ten Commandments and spending time in, I know you guys, when you guys heard probably us introducing the Ten Commandments, you're like, oh my gosh, really? The Ten Commandments, these are like elementary school, and I know like kindergarten rules all over again. We need, the Ten Commandments suffer from our own familiarity with them. We think we know them. But if I went around the room like, hey, name five, you'd go, you'd probably name two. Murder and something about sex. It's probably what you would say. Don't murder, don't have sex outside of marriage or something like that. Or don't sleep with your neighbor's wife or don't whatever. Or quote Nacho Libre, don't wrestle your neighbor. If you've seen that movie. Anyway. What happens is if you've ever seen, if you remember a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Miroslav Volf and his quote in his book, Freedom of Charge. He said this. He said, slowly and perceptibly, the one true God begins acquiring the features of the gods of this world. I think that quote still pertains to this series as well, and the reason why I think that's true is because the Ten Commandments, as we look at this, we begin, because we don't like authority, we don't like an authoritative God. We like God to, like, let us find our own way. We like a God that tells us, you know, I love you, and, and I forgive you, and you can live your life, and I'm there to restore you, and footprints in the sand. I was picking you up when you weren't walking, that sort of thing. <laughs> like, we love that God. But a God that says, you shall not. And not just you shall not, like, commit adultery, but the, even the essence of the command has this pointing forwardness that says, not... Not, not only are you to not sleep with your neighbor's wife, but Jesus even expands on this. When he says, don't look at another person lustfully. Look at, look at sex and sexuality in the context of marriage alone. When you have a God in your face telling you that, you're like, whoa. What happened to the, like, I love you, I forgive you, I'm there for you, I'll pick you up, that sort of thing. This confronts us in a way that I think a lot of us need to be confronted Now, the reason why I think the Ten Commandments are something that should be taught on and talked about in our church, because I think a lot of us think that they're old. They're in the Old Testament. Don't we have a new one? We have a New Testament. We don't need the old one anymore. The Ten Commandments, they're all a bunch of old relics. But the Ten Commandments abide. Even, there are even people who, and this kind of gets under my skin a little bit, when people say, well, the Ten Commandments are there to show you how ugly and mean God is, to point you to Jesus, so you can see Jesus, and like, you don't have to do the Ten Commandments anymore. That's silly. The reason why that's silly is because the Ten Commandments are based on the character of God, and God doesn't change his character. Here's a quote from Philip Ryken when he says, The Ten Commandments display the character of God. They reveal his sovereignty, his jealousy, justice, holiness, honor, faithfulness, providence, truthfulness, and love. The Ten Commandments express God's will for our lives because they are based on his character. See, the Ten Commandments are God's nature expressed in moral imperatives. They're who God is expressed in what we're called to do and how we're called to respond to God. And because the Ten Commandments are based on God's character, because the Ten Commandments are based on God's attributes, 
God would have to un-God himself to set them aside. God would have to cease to be God to say, you don't have to do this anymore. Because all of them flow from the fount of his own character. And we should expect, therefore, that the law expresses God's eternal attributes and therefore are eternally valid. Jesus picks up this idea in Matthew chapter 5 during the Sermon on the Mount when he says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Don't think I've come to get rid of them all. I didn't come to get rid of them. I came to fulfill them. I've come to show you what they look like. I've come to fulfill every single one of them. And then he says, for truly I say to you, like Jesus would ever lie anyway, just so you get the weight of this, I'm going to tell you the truth now. Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass until, from the law until all is accomplished. There's a sense in which the law of God is greater than heaven and earth itself and is more eternal if you can get your mind around that. And the reason why is because God's law is based on God's attributes, and his, and his attributes, he's faithful to all of them. He cannot deny himself, as we learned last week. So the next few weeks, I want to look at the Ten Commandments. And basically what I want to do, my goal in the next seven weeks, is for the church, for all of us, to say together that the commands of God are good. Could you say that? I mean, don't say it now, unless you mean it. But could you say in the morning and you wake up, the commands, the laws of God are good. My prayer for us, my hope for us, is that we would, like the psalmist declared and the psalmist prayed in Psalm 19. In Psalm 19, verse 7, it says this. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making simple the wise. The precepts, and by the way, law, testimony, precepts are all the same. They're all different ways of saying the law. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than gold. Even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the droppings of honeycomb. I, I want to say that as a church. Like we just go, the commands of God are so good. The laws of God, that whole, you shall not like lie. I love that one. They're so good to me because they're clear. I see them. I know what I'm called to do. I know what it was like to live underneath. God is sovereign. They're pure and they're right and they're simple. And not just that, they're better than gold. Better than money, better than my job and my worth, and they're sweeter than honey. Oh, the commands of the Lord. I, I, that's what I hope happens in my soul and in your soul through this, this series. So let's look at it like this. What I want to do is I just want to do a little intro, a small intro, and two things I want to talk about. The salvation being the context of the Ten Commandments and the relationship the basis of the Ten Commandments. If you get these two things, I believe as we move forward through them, you'll start to understand them, and you and I will grasp them together. First, salvation is the context. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 6, if you have your Bible still handy. This is left out of the stone 
commandments, when they write them in stone and they hang them on walls, and um, you might have this tattooed on you somewhere, I don't know. Um, you, we leave out the intro, and the intro is actually very important. It says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Notice first that the gospel comes before the law. The gospel comes before the law. Before the children of Israel, before the church is ever told what to do, it's told who they are. It's told what God has done to them. That's the context. You could almost say that the law resides in an environment of grace. Whenever God calls us to do something, it always resides in this environment of grace. This happens even in our own salvation as Christians. Before God ever tells us what to do, he tells us who we are. Before he says, hey, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who you have from God. It is not your own. It was bought with the price. Christ redeemed your physical body. Therefore, don't sleep around. See what it does? It doesn't go, hey, stop sleeping around so God can love your body. It says God loves you, and he loves your body, and he died for you to redeem you and set you right. Therefore, live this way. The context of the Ten Commandments is not like, hey, Israel, so um, I want to save you guys, but you guys are kind of wretched, so this is what we're going to do. I'm going to give you ten things to do, and once you do them, then I'll save you. That's not what he does. God saves them. And as Dave read in Deuteronomy, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, he saved Israel. And the Ten Commandments were given after salvation. And so the context is everything. The context is this, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. See, Exodus talks about, from Exodus chapter 1 on, when God calls Moses to deliver a people, Moses was to go to Pharaoh, and if you've, you guys read Exodus, I assume, or you've seen some movie, or you guys know, general context, Exodus, um, Moses goes before Pharaoh and says what? Let my people go. Okay, yeah, you guys know. Let my people go. And then what happens right after that? It's like, let my people go for what, for what reason? He says, so that they can go up and worship the Lord their God. Let my people go so they can worship. And then with mighty hand and outstretched arm, God does deliver them finally. And when God delivers them, he then brings them into the, into, up to the foot of Mount Sinai and then gives them the law. The context is salvation. Actually, when... Israel would finally get into the promised land. And um, they were living, Israel was living by these particular laws that governed their land and that governed them as a people. Kids would grow up, obviously, having to obey these laws. Did you, so I, I, maybe some of you grew up in a believing home, a faith-based home. And you guys did certain things as a, as a um, family because you believed in God, because you followed God. Could have been family devotions, prayer, church on Sunday, and then when all your friends are out playing on Sunday, but you had to dress up and go to church, there was probably a time when you were like three or four, or like 16, you're like, why do I got to go to church? Like, why do I have to do this? Like, all my friends are playing, you know, Nintendo or whatever they were playing then, or sports or whatever you guys do, I don't know. And, um, and I want to do that. I don't want to go to church. I, I actually have, I, we don't, my wife and I don't have kids yet, but... We have a lot of friends that do, and when they hit that age, like two or three, I've, I've had several friends tell me that, um, or three or four, I don't really know, um, somewhere in there, 
these kids kind of pick up on the fact that they live in a different home than the rest of their friends. That they're Christian and their friends are not. And they, they start using that against mom and dad. They're going, well, I, I don't like God. Because they, they somehow attach going to bed on time and not eating certain sweets with God. Like, I don't like God. I like my friend Susan. She can sleep whenever she wants to. They don't have to go to church. I don't like this family. Like, they use that against them. There's some point in your life where you kind of realize that we're different. We grew up in a different home. And when they go to their parents, when, your parent, when, when these kids go, to, why are we different? Why do we go to church? Why do we do these things? What are you going to say? A lot of parents say, because God said so. And that's what we're going to do. Now, anticipating this, God knew that. God knew that the children of Israel would grow up and there would be a peculiar people, a different people. They would have laws. They would have sacrifices. They would worship one God when everyone else worshiped multiple gods. They'd have God of weather and God of like, harvest and sex and all these things. But, they, but Israel worshiped one God. And so when the kids grew up, they're like, Mom, Dad, why do we observe these laws? Deuteronomy chapter 6. In the future, your children are going to ask you, what is the meaning of these laws, these decrees, these regulations that the Lord your God commanded to, you, to obey? This is what you tell them. Tell them a story. This is the story you want, I want you to tell them. Tell them that we were slaves and pharaohs, pharaoh slaves in Egypt. But the Lord, he brought us out of Egypt. He brought us out of bondage with a strong hand. The Lord did miraculous signs and wonders before our eyes, dealing, dealing terrifying blows against Egypt and Pharaoh and all his people. And he brought us out of Egypt so he can give us this land he has sworn to give our ancestors. And the Lord our God commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear him so we can continue... He can continue to bless us and preserve our lives as he's done to this day. This is the context. The context is salvation. It wasn't tell your kids that you, you better or God's going to smite you. Don't tell your kids like, well, God said so. Tell your kids, we were slaves in Egypt. And it was hard. And we were in bondage. But God delivered us. He's good. And we're his people. That's why. Do you see how this is different? The context of the law is not, you better do this or else. The context is this. God saved you. He redeemed you. Therefore, because of that, the environment that you're in, this environment of love and grace and mercy and salvation and deliverance and power, live as God's covenant people. See, the law is not a new type of bondage. A lot of people think that. Like, okay, now I follow God, now I have to start doing all these things. It's a new type of bondage. The law is not a new type of bondage. Remember, the law was addressed to those who were brought out of bondage. And its aim was not to bring in a new bondage, but rather to establish the children of Israel in their new freedom. The Ten Commandments are a lifestyle of the free. The Ten Commandments are a lifestyle of the free. They're people who have been delivered by God to live this way. The Ten Commandments were not given to a pagan people where God was beating up the culture for not believing. It was given to a redeemed people. Understanding all of this allows us to see the commandments in possibly a different light. They're not strict rules of conduct, but deliverance for those who are vulnerable. The Ten Commandments are salvation-based. This is a, a, a long quote, but I want to read it to you because I think it's appropriate here. Glenn Stossen said in his book, On the Sermon on the Mount, reflecting back on the Ten Commandments, those two things do dovetail perfectly together. He says, 
The one who gives the Ten Commandments is the Holy Lord, who delivers us from our need and our slavery. This is why the Ten Commandments begin with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The rest of the commandments continue in this very way to deliver those who are vulnerable and in need of deliverance. And then then he goes to list them. Look at this. All workers need a Sabbath day of rest. Listen to that. Each week to deliver them from their vulnerability of being overworked. Elderly parents who are vulnerable to neglect must be honored. People who are vulnerable to being murdered need a society that protects them from murder. Married couples who are vulnerable to betrayal and destruction of marriage require protection from adultery. People who are vulnerable to stealing should have protection from stealing. People who are being tried in court or those or whose reputation is being threatened must be protected from false witnesses. Neighbors need protection from their other neighbors who might covet and steal their possessions. The Ten Commandments are about God's deliverance of the vulnerable from powerful forces that threaten them. They're also about God's command to us to participate in delivering those who are vulnerable. When you look at the Ten Commandments like this, they are very refreshing. This is why the psalmists sing about how good God is. This is why the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119, is all about the love of the law of God. One time I was at our men's retreat, and afterwards they're like, does anyone from the retreat want to share something? I don't have a word. Some people were like throwing out some stuff. This one guy stood up and said, God gave me Psalm 119, and he read the whole thing. It's like an hour and a half. <laughs> don't ever do that at a retreat. But this is like, the, if you go to the longest chapter in the Bible, it's devoted and devoted brilliantly to the law of God. How beautiful, how wonderful the law is. The Ten Commandments are good. See, it's refreshing because imagine a society that's defined by chaos, injustice, slavery, and unrest. Imagine that sort of society. These laws would be a delight. If these laws were introduced into that society, you're like, wait, you're telling me that no one's going to steal from me? There's a law that's protecting those people from taking my wife, from taking my stuff, from taking my things from my house. You, you tell me there's laws to protect me from neighbors that lie against me, that defame my name, that just talk all this trash and, and ruin my reputation? In a society that has complete chaos, these laws are refreshing. Salvation. Is the, is the context of the Ten Commandments. And lastly, relationship is the basis. You have to get this point. The language of the Ten Commandments reads like vows. That's the essence of the first command. You shall have no other gods before me. That phrasing can be seen in two ways. No other gods before me, like God has to be number one. God has to have priority. That's one way to read it. Another way to read it is... No other gods beside me. I'm not, God is saying that I'm not first among many. I'm actually the only one. Don't let any other gods in my presence. Actually, both of these are correct. It's covenantal language. It's like a wedding vow. God is not speaking morally here. God is not saying to us morally, simply morally. He's speaking relationally. When Ash and I, we got married 
Um, my wife and I actually got married 10 years ago. We actually just celebrated it this last, this last week. And, and when we vowed our lives to each other, this language wasn't morally, simply morally binding. When we exchanged our vows, it wasn't like, Ashley, you better not have any husbands beside me. It wasn't like morally like, Ashley, do, you, do we understand this? Like, no other husband. She's like, oh, uh, no. She's like, okay. <laughs> like, that's not, that's not the vow. That's implied. That's a duh. Like, no one, I, I'm not going to do a wedding. You're like, hey, you can't have any other husband. She's like, really? I didn't. Everyone gets that. What are vows? Vows are, 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 are giving yourself completely to the other person. Vows are, the, more, the morality of the vows are implied in there. What you're saying is this, is that I'm committing my life to you. When you say, God, I'll have no other gods besides you, you're committing your life to God. It's not you're saying, God, uh, can I have just like four gods and you're like number one God? That's imp- the morality is implied. These are vows. God, I'm committing my life to you. Said differently, um, in his book, The Ten Commandments from the Backside, Jay Ellsworth uh, Callis says, he defines the first commandment, you shall have no other gods, like this. This is how he defines it. God shall have all of you. God shall have all of you. Commandment one, God shall have all of you. This is what this means. No other gods, we're going to talk about this next week, no other gods. This, is, this motivation's intimacy. See, every relationship makes claims, makes commands. You have to understand, and I have to understand, that God is a person, and there's no personal relationship without commands. But because, because of love, they don't feel like commands. Again, when I took my wedding vows with Ash, it, it wasn't like the command of like not to lie. Ash goes, okay, can't lie. I'm like, oh, why all these rules? No one says that. Of course I don't want to lie to her. I love her. Why would I want to do that? Why would I want to break trust? Why would I want to hurt her? You and I have this horrible way of seeing these commandments. Which is like, I can't lie. God, God says I can't lie. Do you understand that the, the context is relationship? These are vows that you make to God. These are things that you enter into. They're like, God, I'm not going to, why would I want to lie to, to people? Why would I want to lie to you? The motivation for the commands of God is intimacy with God. This is why the first commandment reads, no other gods. Or the Shema, as it goes on in Deuteronomy, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. And they would recite that day after day. Love the Lord your God. And when Jesus was asked, what are the greatest, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God. And the second's just like it. Love others. All the commandments hang on these things. Why? They're all about relationship. If you guys have ditched the Ten Commandments going, why? Oh, they're so old. And they're so written in stone. And they're so like crusty. And I'm not going to, don't, I don't like, I can't not lie. Put them back in its context. You've been saved. And you and I have a relationship with God. But why are the commandments a negative? Why are they all framed to the negative? You shall not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. They seem so like, oh, thou shalt not. Well, tell me what I can, I can do. Jay Moiter said, um, or J.A. Moiter said this in his book, The Message of Exodus. This is a wonderful way to look at this. He says, a negative command 
is far more liberating than a positive one. For a positive command restricts life to that one course of action, whereas a negative command leaves life open to every course of action except one. Do you guys think of the commandments that way? Are you guys lost? You guys, some of you guys missed that, huh? Some of you guys are like, what? Did... Okay, what he's saying there is like, okay, a good example would be the Garden of Eden. What was the only command? Don't eat that tree. What does that imply? Eat all the other trees. Do you guys get that? Like, can you imagine God going, okay, everyone, only that one tree you can eat. And I'm like, oh, man, that's the only thing I could do? What if God said, you shall eat only that tree? Everybody would be bummed. Thou shalt not eat on that tree. What does that do? Open up all the other trees. You shall not lie. What does that do? Open up all these ways of truth. What if God only taught you one way to do truth? Only one way to, to love your neighbor. That's not true. It's like this. Okay, this is how you're not to do it and do everything else. It's freedom. This is illustrated well, I think, in the Garden of Eden. But the problem is we take our relationship with God and make it about what we can't do instead of what we're called to do. But there's a pointing forwardness to all the commands of God. Romans 13 typifies this really well when Paul writes in Romans 13, 8. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to his neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling of the law. Love fulfills the law. The command of God in the context of relationship is to love. To love God and to love each other. But some of you in here know that I, I've, I, I know I've broken the Ten Commandments. I haven't loved God the way I need to. I haven't loved my neighbor. I haven't loved my spouse. I haven't loved my roommate. I haven't loved my, my enemies. Jesus even ups the enemies. Love your enemies. We can't do it. The Ten Commandments point forward. Remember we said that? And Mount Sinai points to another mountain. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus makes his way up onto the mountain. It is now famously called the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus goes to the top of this mountain and his clothes begin to gleam white. And Mark has this really weird thing where he says, whiter than anyone's bleach, which is so weird. It's like, gets all domestic or something. It's like, I've tried to get my clothes that white, but no one has ever got, like, just tripping out on bleach. I would totally do that. I'm like, wow, that's so white. Um, and so Jesus is, like, glowing. And then Moses... And Elijah show up. And these aren't holograms. These are them, really there. Moses represents the law. Elijah, the prophets. Moses never got into the promised land. Even though he was God's servant, even though God chose him, even though he delivered the Ten Commandments, even though he was a friend of God, Due to his sin and Israel's sin, he wasn't even allowed into the promised land. But God sneaks him in anyway. He's there with Jesus. In Mark chapter 9, he's there. He, like, gets in. Like, how does he get in? How does the law ever get in? 
How do you and I live the life that we could never, ever live? How do we get into the relationships that we could never, you know, like, I break every commandment. How do I get in? There's only one way in. And so to mirror the Ten Commandments, Jesus is up on this mountain, Moses, Elijah are there, and God booms from heaven again. He actually speaks again, and this time he didn't say the Ten Commandments. He said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. All of it is pointing towards Jesus. The way that you and I get in, the way that we're in right relationship with God, the way that you and I fulfill the law of God, the love of God, the, love, the only way that we can is by Christ turning us in to those people. So if you go away today trying to go, I'm going to live better today. This week, I'm going to read the Ten Commandments. I'm going to memorize like five of them. I'm going to try to do them. You'll fail. You have to let Christ turn you into that sort of person. Turn you into a lover. A lover of God and a lover of people. To where it's not just I'm not stealing, but you're generous. You're giving your money away. You're just not lying. But you're, you're speaking the truth to people in love everywhere you go. You're not just not sleeping with someone else's wife or husband. But you start seeing the people in the church as brothers and sisters in the Lord. You're seeing your own girlfriend and boyfriend as a brother or sister in Christ. It changes everything. Let Christ turn us into that sort of people, into this sort of society. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word and its power, and I pray you would transform us into this, God. I can't do it. I can, I can preach until my voice goes out, and I can't do it. You have to transform us, and I pray that you would. In Jesus' name, amen.